Our scripture this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, the book of Revelation, and the book of John. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took a scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan. For those of you who don't know, Barry is in the legal profession. And SLU, is that a a legal word? SLU? That was really striking. I never hear him use words like that. Even though he is from Polk County originally, he doesn't talk like that very often, so it's kind of funny. Um, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we are uh, at the end, the close of a series in the month of July on mission, uh, kind of subtitled, Going to the Lost. Uh, in the month of June, we did a series on going to the least, a call to mercy. And so as we finish these two up, uh, in the coming weeks, in the next two weeks, I believe, Uh, Drew is really going to kind of bring it all together and talk to us about the way, in light of our call to the least and the lost, how we engage uh, with the broader culture around us. Uh, Some of the pitfalls, uh, some of the the challenges that really face us as the church. Uh, But this morning, as we finish it up, uh, what we have done in this past month is started by looking at Abraham in the book of Genesis, and Abraham's call reflecting our call, or our call reflecting Abram's call, I should say, to be a blessing to the nations as a result of our being blessed. Uh, And then he went to Jonah and talked about Jonah, uh, talked about Jonah's reluctance to proclaim uh, to a foreign people uh, and some of the results of that. And then, of course, we had the week on self-pity where we were all slayed. Uh, or I should say filleted, uh, our hearts were because so many of us are eaten up with that. Uh, And he pointed us, of course, to the gospel as the 
uh, solution for our self-pity. And then last week, uh, Tony talked with us about Jesus' commission to the apostles in Acts chapter 1. So I'm going to try to bring it all together uh, today. Uh, two things before I get started. One is, please do be in prayer for our team that left yesterday morning for Nicaragua. Uh, they were all very excited. Uh, we had one person that had a chance to go again, um, who was just kind of ready and willing and capable, and so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, but the team was very excited uh, as they go and do the, the work that uh, the Lathrops have for them. And the second thing is, I think I can speak for Drew, well, I know I can speak for Drew, just to thank you for your reception uh, of Tony last week. Uh, it was his first sermon. Uh, I thought he did a bang-up job, uh, or a great job. I'm not sure the proper way to say that. Uh, he was hilarious, which I was unaware he was capable of being hilarious. So, just because I don't know him that well. And so it was really cool. And so thank you for your reception of him. Um, there should be a map that we have up here that I just want to draw your attention to as we begin. Woo, that's really small. I apologize. That's kind of the way that it came off the, uh, off the webpage. But I want to talk for a minute about the state of global evangelism and how a, a, a heightened awareness of this, I really do believe, will make us a church that is more thoughtful and more uh, strategic in the way that we view the nations. And Lord willing, we'll send out our own from this body to these places. But you have three colors up there. Uh, you've got world A, which is the gray area. Uh, the most least evangelized, non-Christian, well, it's actually unevangelized, non-Christian worlds, approximately 30% of the world's population. World B is the yellow area. And that's considered the evangelized but non-Christian part of the world, approximately 35% of the population. And then world C is the red area. This is the evangelized so-called Christian world, Um, and it's another roughly 30%. The box you see there, those that, that, uh, that line, sort of long rectangle, is what some of you have heard before, uh, the 1040 window. This is by far probably the least reached area of the world. Obviously, all the gray, for the most part, is in it. Uh, and for those of you that uh, are, know, know your geography, that's mostly the Muslim world. So the state of things now is that uh, World A is, is pretty, well, pretty well reached, but you'll notice in red is Europe. And this map is a little bit dated. I think it's four or five years old. But Europe is slowly moving toward yellow. And a lot of people who study this stuff really think in 50 or 100 years it might even be gray. Uh, And that was, of course, where the Reformation and so many other things began. Uh, And so it's really uh, striking to look at this. What becomes apparent by looking at the map and I'm going to give you some numbers in just a second, is that the non-Christian world is much larger than the Christian world, uh, population-wise. And so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, I want to give you some numbers, and I want to just leave this map up here, because uh, as you get a view of the world, just think about this. And obviously, Florida is over here. (laughs) 
I'm doing a rough pointing job there. Um, and Winter Haven is right in the middle of Florida. Uh, but the population of the world is roughly 7 billion people. The total number of Christians worldwide is about 2.3. And the total of non-Christians both unevangelized, that is, no gospel witness at all, and evangelized, that is, they've heard of Jesus, is about 4.6 billion, with a B. Uh, And so as you look at that map, think about this. At this moment, there are roughly 2 billion, with a B, people in the world who've never heard Jesus. They never heard somebody say that name. They've never heard of the word gospel and Jesus in the same sentence. So as we finish the series, I want to do a couple of things as you see the outline there in your worship folder. I want to remind us who we are, the task God has assigned to us as we look at those passages from 1 Peter and Revelation. In various forms and fashions, all of us have a task. Tony alluded to this last week. Part of your job is to figure out what is your task, what role do you play? Because you can either go, send, hold the rope, so to speak, as as the people go, hold the rope, pray for them, support them. You can go, you can do that sending, or you can be disobedient. Those are the three choices in the mission enterprise as we think about it. So, As we think about who we are, think about the task God's assigned to us, we also have to ask the question and answer it, why? Why are there so many who haven't heard? And as Paul, the apostle says in Romans, how can they hear unless someone speaks to them, is sent to them, lives among them? What happens when we forget our identity as a result of God's people, or excuse me, as God's people? What happens? What are some of the results Uh, And I think it will help us answer those questions of why there are so many who haven't heard and why is it so hard to recruit missionaries? And why is missionary attrition, that is the number who are coming off the field, off of places, even in that 1040 window, for all kinds of reasons, why is that number higher than the amount we're recruiting and sending to those places? And if you look at the bottom of the uh, 1040 window, if you were to draw that line all the way across... That's roughly the equator, okay? The bottom half of the world right now has more Christians in it than the top half. So the bottom half of the world is starting to send missionaries to the top half. So don't be surprised if in 25 years, maybe even 10 years, you're going to start seeing missionaries from Latin America moving to the United States. Because it's a foreign field with... Hispanics who don't know Jesus. And so they're coming here to go after those people groups from their home countries. It's really amazing. So I want to look at our identity, look at the assignment, look at what, what goes wrong, and then finally, in John 20, to have a look at the cure for our forgetfulness. The cure, uh, the hope the motivation we have for getting on this mission. So first, look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It's the first passage there on your um, outline sheet in your worship folder. Much of the imagery and language that Peter's using is drawn from the Old Testament. 
You see, Israel's identity was always rooted in their experience of salvation. God says to them, I chose you among all the peoples of the earth to be mine, to be my treasured possession, he calls them. They were chosen, they were royal, they were holy. Uh, But it's significant that Peter, in this letter, is speaking to the church. He's speaking to you and I. He's not speaking to Jews only, per se. Jews who now have faith in Jesus, but he's speaking to us as well. And so if you're here, and you consider yourself a Christian, if your faith and your hope are in Jesus Christ, then they're describing you these verses. Peter says we have a kinship in the gospel. It forms us into a new race. It gathers us into a new nation. As Israel was called by God and led out of the plague of darkness in Egypt into the light of God's presence on Mount Sinai, so have we, the church, been called out of the darkness of sin into the marvelous light of God's presence, which culminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's all verse 9. And what Peter is saying here is amazing. He's saying we as the people of God owe our very existence to his initiative to choose us. And as a result, he makes us royal priests. He makes us representatives of the king of the universe. Calling us to intercede for other people. Pointing them to the king as was a priest's job. We're also holy. We're also set apart as God's possession. Christians don't belong to themselves or somehow get to live independently of everyone else. As we say, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity, right? When he calls you to himself, he calls you to a people. He calls you to a a group, a body. And Christians are uh, not owned, they don't own themselves, they're owned by God. And they are therefore part of a nation. Only it's not like being American or Korean or Ugandan. Our nationality is not tied to where we were born, but to how we've been reborn. Look at Revelation. The song that the elders are singing to the Lamb says, When the Lamb was slain, His blood was spilled, and a ransom was paid. Look at verse 9. Okay? The Lamb was slain, and his blood was spilled, and a ransom was paid. You, uh, excuse me, by your blood, you ransomed people for God. Our birth as a holy nation was costly. It wasn't our blood that was spilled. It was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was his blood that was spilled. And here's what forces us to look at the two billion the two billion who've never heard of the Lamb. Verse 9 says, Revelation 5, verse 9, you ransomed people for God from where? Every tribe, every tongue, every language, excuse me, every language, every people, every nation. So the church has blood relatives we've never met. Not blood by physical blood, but blood that we're related to them through Jesus, the blood of Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. It's almost like we're getting ready for the largest family reunion ever. I mean, that's that's what this is going to be. That's That's this vision John was given in the book of Revelation. So, put put away all the 
pictures you might have of family reunions. Most of my family has passed away, so I've never had the opportunity to go to a family reunion. Some of you have them every year or every couple of years. Some of you hate going to them. Some of you love going to them. But this picture in Revelation is our family, all our blood relatives coming together. The song of Revelation assures us we have brothers and sisters all over the world from every people group that hasn't heard. Our job assignment is to go get them. To go find them. To go tell them. To go proclaim to them. To go minister to them. To be priests for them. We talked about that last month. To do good to them sometimes is what forces us, or excuse me, uh, forces them to listen to us. It's what earns us the right to speak to them and tell them with our mouths the truth of the gospel. Whereas they might see the truth of the gospel come out in our lives first. But nevertheless, it's our assignment to go and get them. Peter says, we have been made into a nation, a royal priesthood, a uh, a chosen race, look at verse 9 there at the very top of the page, 1 Peter 2. You have been made all this, Peter says, so that you can proclaim. Proclaim what? The excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So our job, the, the, the reason we have been brought together is to declare, proclaim, the excellencies of God, the beauty of God. The Greek word that Peter uses means virtue or power or moral purity. So in other words, our task is to proclaim in word and deed the absolute worth and value of who God is and what He's done above all other things. The Apostle is saying we've been formed into a people, a nation, a priesthood. Revelation 5 there at the very bottom, last verse Uh, that I have included here, you have made them, that is us, his people, a kingdom and priests. Literally in the Greek, it's kingdom of priests. So that we can proclaim God to everyone we meet. God is more beautiful. God is more powerful. God is more worth being related to and owned by than anyone or anything else that you could possibly imagine. Our message is repent, Turn from serving dead idols to serve the living God. He's the only one who's worthy of worship. Proclaim to who? The answer is Revelation 5. It is the people he's ransomed. Obviously, we don't know who they are. Our job is to get out there and find them. Get out there and proclaim to them. As Tony mentioned last week, Jesus says, I have sheep who are not of this fold, as he's talking to these Jewish uh, apostles, I must bring them too. So, go get them. But the problem is, as, as you'll notice there in the second point, we easily forget who we are and what we have been sent out to do. In fact, I'd say, when we forget who we are as God's people, it is inevitable we'll forget and neglect our work. We forget our identity, we'll forget our work. The two things are connected. And the cause of our forgetting uh, is what I want to talk about 
first and then mention a couple of results uh, just for us to consider and be thinking through. Because if this is the call, uh, if this is the job, if this is who we are, our identity is God's people, uh, you know, why aren't, we, why aren't we there? Why is this whole map not red? You know, questions like that. Uh, Andy, you could, um, or Rob, you could take that down if you would. Much of what causes us to forget our identity and our mission is fullness. Uh, what I mean is this, our lives are so full, they're full of activity, full of stuff, full of appointments, games, recitals, trips, vacation. It's comforting, it's nice to have a full life, because it makes you feel significant, makes you feel worth something, makes you feel important. The problem, though, is that we fill our lives much of the time with things that draw our attention inward toward ourselves, our families, our homes, our schedules. And when the potential for that something that is filling our lives to be emptied or lost, when, when we see we might lose it, we, it might get out of our grasp, we tend to react negatively because we're scared of losing it. Some of our fullness will be lost. So how do we compensate for that thing? We fight tooth and nail to keep it. Or we go searching for a replacement. And this is a cycle. Selfishly filling our lives with stuff comes from one source. So if I can boil it down to one source, it is our flesh. And if we're not careful, the very fact that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has defeated sin and death, if we're not careful, that can shrink in its ability to ground us because all these other things out here competing for our attention. Our flesh says, no, I can get it done with those things. I don't need the grounding of the gospel. I don't need the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how does it shrink? When you and I exchange the truth about God's love for us in Jesus Christ for lies, here's what happens. Just to give you an example, we pursue and we fill our lives with real goods, things that are good in and of themselves, power, wisdom, money, influence, well-behaved kids, those are all good things. God's put them in the world, we pursue them. But what happens is, over time, if we're not careful, if we're not grounding ourselves in God's word, in the person and work of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel, those things can become more real, more life-giving than God himself. And in the midst of it, we stop surrendering our will to his, and we make our desires and our will the law. If I can't have that thing, well, I'm going to find out a way to have that thing. And if anybody's in my way to getting that thing, I'm going to mow them down. I'm going to cut them out of the way so that I can get to that thing. So an an example, if, if I'm interested in becoming a lawyer, I go to law school. I work hard in law school. I get good grades. When I graduate, I take the bar exam, but I don't pass it. Now, crisis. If I'm disappointed, but I'm able to move on to study the areas I didn't pass, and I'm planning to retake it, I know that becoming a lawyer hasn't begun to rule my life. I know that that's not an identity that has become something I worship. I must achieve that thing. But if I'm absolutely devastated, on the other hand, sinking into a depression, if, I, if, if it causes me such deep pain that I have to numb it with things like alcohol or pornography, 
then there's a good chance that my will was, I'm going to pass this thing. And when I didn't, when God said, no, maybe you aren't going to pass, you need to study more, maybe now's not the right time, for whatever reason, my will has now bucked up against God's. Who's going to win? It's the response when something doesn't go according to our plan. That's how you know that that thing, albeit a good thing, a God-given thing, a God-implanted-in-your-heart-and-your-life thing, if it doesn't go according to plan and you completely lose it, then that thing has become an ultimate thing that you're trying to fill your life with rather than with God. The irony of this whole... This whole discussion, I keep turning around, I think that map's there. This whole discussion of mission is for me personally. This idol in my life was being a missionary. Eight, ten years ago. I mean, that was, that's, that's the, the, I was going to sacrifice everything on that altar. That is the idol in my home. I'd go home at night, I'd worship at its feet, I'd sacrifice to it, I'd do whatever I needed to do to have that, that thing. Which was that identity, which was, I'm now a missionary. People will think so well of me. People will say, oh, such faith to leave. Oh, you're going to be not making much money. How are you going to do that? Oh, oh, so sad. Oh, that just oh, fed my ego. Pretty soon, my head is huge. Gigantic. We move on the field, and God takes an ever-so-small pin and gently pops the balloon of my ego, saying to me, over the course of a couple of years, it wasn't me you wanted. It was that thing. It was that identity. It was that job. It was, you know, whatever. It, It wasn't me that you really wanted, that you valued. Now, think with me about a couple of results that flow from this propensity to forget. Uh, Really what it is, is it's walking, to use the Apostle Paul's language, it's walking in the flesh rather than walking by the Spirit. And let's see how just a couple of these impact our ability to go to the nations. So first result, we end up with too much It's not that we have too little and we can't afford to send missionaries. It's we have too much, right? We receive and we keep more often than we give away. Just a little bit of research I did uh, this week, I was struck. Rough numbers now, okay? So don't hold me to these like to the exact penny. But last year, Americans spent roughly $41 billion on pets and the pet industry. A uh, hundred billion on fast food, forty-two billion on weight loss programs, uh, twenty billion on home entertainment. Now, it's also worth considering that on average, in our own denomination, four pennies out of every dollar that is given go to international ministries. Four cents out of every dollar. Where's the rest of our dollar going? Well, the answer is we have 90% in this country, 90% of the Christian resources and workers in the world, 
And much of the time they're working in that world see that red part of the map. The other 10% work in the worlds A and B, the gray part and the yellow part. So you can see the disparity. And it's not surprising that a number of people groups haven't heard the gospel to this point in history. Why would anyone want to leave a world where we have pets, fast food, weight loss, and home entertainment, so to speak, and we have all the resources and workers that we possibly could ever hope for? And so that leads us to proclaim, rather than, First Peter says, you have been put together as a chosen race, royal priesthood, God's God's called you to himself so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We end up proclaiming the excellencies of all these other things that we have filled our lives with rather than the excellencies of God and his value and his worth. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And so Peter's very clear, as his people, our proclamation must be, should be, of the excellencies of him, the beauty of him, the worth and value of him, and yet it's not. And so what's the cure? We're going to spend the remaining time on that last paragraph there of John chapter 20, uh, 19 to 22. This is a missionary passage, but it provides a cure and a motivation, I believe, for missionary activity. We've seen... How easy it is to forget. And so, how regularly we need to be reminded. Well, how does it provide a cure? Well, look. It draws us to look at Jesus. To listen to Him. To hear Him say, My peace be with you. As He showed His disciples His hands and His side, we get to see them too. Here's the Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world, offering the peace he's gained for us. How did he gain it? He shows them his wounded side, his wounded hands. By his wounds we are healed. And when you see his pierced hands and side, when your heart is melted by his love for you, not just he says I love you, but his life, his actions prove that love, you'll sing with the hymn writer, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And his peace, his peace will flood your soul. When I'm prone to forget who I am, my identity is God's beloved child, my identity is a member of the royal priesthood, I need to have the gospel preached to me. You and I both need the gospel preached to us. I need to hear how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. I need to sing those songs. I need to hear others tell me that. I need to see it in His Word and hear Him tell me that through the Scriptures. He pierced His hands, or excuse me, His hands and His side were pierced so that I could be whole. He was condemned so that I could be accepted. And here's the thing about this cure, when you see Jesus Christ pouring out himself for you, it will give you the power and the willingness to pour out yourself and your resources for those who've never heard of him, both here in Winter Haven 
and to the ends of the earth. Especially to the places where no one's heard. He comes to his disciples to remind them and assure them of his love for them. And then he says something very powerful. Look at uh, verse 21. He says, peace be with you. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Just in case you forgot in the last 30 seconds. I want my peace to be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, or in the same way, I am sending you. Now it's important to realize, how was Jesus sent? He was sent as a son, listening and obeying his Father's voice. He said, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He was sent as a witness to speak the truth of God, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to point others to his Father. He was sent to serve rather than to be served. He was sent to give his life as a ransom for many. He was sent to rescue, to save lives by losing his. And Jesus says here that you and I are sent in the same manner. So if you're here and you consider yourself a Christian, you can rest assured Jesus is sending us as his body out into the world to bear witness to the same truth. The Greek word for witness is the word from which we get martyr. So a martyr is a witness. Every Christian bears witness to the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So there are times when that witness will cost them their life. When we think of martyr, that's instantly kind of where our mind goes. doesn't mean you're always going to lose your life if you bear witness to the truth. Physically. But rest assured, you are going to have to die to many, many things. And so the Father's sending of him is the pattern for his sending of us. And so while the cure is to see Jesus and have your heart melted by his work, the motivation for us is having his stamp of approval on us. And what's the last thing he says? Verse 22, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So his stamp of approval, and Tony mentioned this last week, the power that we have as we go is his Holy Spirit being in us. It secures us. It gives us confidence as we go to the nations near and far. It's not as though he tells us, go, I'm sending you into the world as my witnesses. Have fun and don't mess this thing up. He says, receive my very Holy Spirit. And so the reality for us is, without the Spirit, we will fail. Without the Spirit, we have no motivation to go. On the other hand, if we see Jesus pouring out his life to death, living in complete submission to his Father to win for us an identity as royals, God's own possession, if we see his wounded hands inside, if we hear him say, my peace be with you, receive my Holy Spirit, then we'll go because we have a confidence. We have a security. And that will propel us out to find our brothers and sisters in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the earth. That's what Jesus sends us out to do. It's for his worldwide glory and honor. So let's pray and ask that he would make us a people, make Redeemer a church that reflects this truth, both here 
uh, and to the ends of the earth. So let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do marvel that by uh, your wounds we're healed. We do marvel that you uh, you you'd lose your life so that we could gain one. That you would come on a rescue mission to to save uh, by by losing, by dying, by suffering. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as that truth begins and continues to melt our hearts, to sink down into the depths of our soul, that we would be a people who witness to the truth of who you are and what you've done here in Winter Haven and in Nicaragua and in Uganda and to the ends of the earth. And Father, we pray, we beg of you to send out workers into your harvest field, to send even from our own midst, some who will go to the gray area that we saw on that map to go and to, to, to find our blood relatives from every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation so that you might receive the worldwide glory and honor that you alone deserve. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, amen. This is a great way to end uh, our service every week with a promise. Uh, as I've been saying, uh, the power and the motivation that we have to go forward and, well, complete our job assignment uh, is that God goes with us in the person and work and power of the Holy Spirit, uh, grounded in the gospel, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ, uh, for the glory of the Father. And so as we go, uh, I just remind you of that before I speak this over you, or before I should say God speaks it over you. It's a promise, it's an equipping, uh, it's a security. Uh, So as we go, uh, go knowing this this is over you. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and give you His peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in His peace.